say Hi, Jeremy. Right? <laughs> Hi, Jeremy. <laughs> Hi, Raphael. I wasn't sure if that was a, a test hello or a real hello. Hi, Jeremy. Hi. Hi. You're creeping uh, me out, but... <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Uh, oh, man. How yeah. are you? Good. I'm, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, not I'm about a... to embark on another journey. Oh, I'm just going to go on a little family vacation. I, vacation is not something I do very often. I'm actually pretty excited about it. I only have to do like one presentation while I'm away. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we decided to do the podcast before your trip, though, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. So we're doing yeah. it a little bit earlier in the week on a Friday instead of a Sunday. But yeah, and that for that reason, we're especially unprepared, listeners. <laughs> Whatever listeners oh, are still Oh, I've been wa- working on this on. my whole life. Your whole, that's right, that's right. We've been listening to music our whole life, so we're, we're uh, Yeah, okay, well, yeah. Raphael and I often swap roles choosing topics. We might as well jump into it. Like, this week, uh, I was like, you pick. And he's like, no, you pick. And I was like, okay, let's just talk about music. Yeah, uh, well, the, maybe disclaimer. That, uh, there, are, there were a few very obvious topics, like maybe art schools, uh, galleries, Facebook, Google, and we're slowly covering all the obvious topics. Oh, like in previous episodes, right? As we near 100 episodes of random nonsense, we've almost covered off the easy topics, and now we're getting into them. So then once we go to... what, What would be a difficult topic? I don't know, like, because I don't think you're right. I just think that, like, we need to take more than five minutes to challenge, <laughs> challenge <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> because, like, last week we did photography, and and frankly, we only scratched the surface of that. I really do feel like oh yeah, like, yeah. But we could. To... What I'm saying is, we could decide to do part two and three of certain topics. But mm-hmm. uh, um, like, we covered all the major tech brands. We we even did an episode about business cards. So. <laughs> that was early it, it, on, though. Like early on, we were actually very. Specific. I really like. It. There's this book by Andy Warhol called "The Philosophy of Andy Warhol from A to B and Back Again," mm-hmm. and it starts out with weird conversations between person A and person B, and after that, it's sort of an encyclopedic, just his philosophy from A to Z. So he covers money, mm-hmm. uh, sex, art, fun, and any topic, uh, just alphabetically, and it's each is one page. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, and so it, it kind of feels like the podcast off. is like, yeah, okay, we'll do an episode <laughs> about money, we'll do an episode about groceries. and uh, yeah. Is uh, is it just as uninformative as our podcast, the, the book? Yeah, it's his character. <laughs> I think it was written by his team. He didn't even write it himself. So the, there was that team around Interview Magazine, and they, they yeah. created a character in his voice. Actually, that is one topic we could do on another occasion, uh, but it is team, because I've been, like, as an artist, mm-hmm. you often think of it as a solo act, but recently I've been, wor- I currently have, I'm working with more than 15 people, um, which, I like, I'm, I'm now addicted to this way of working, <laughs> uh, in a way, like, it allows you to scale, and, and, I, and then I was talking to someone, and they're like, oh, yeah, like, that's just like what Andy Warhol did. I was like, oh, yeah. But I guess that's just like what, uh, you know, what business people do, basically. Uh, well, that's that's what uh, and even a lot of animals, uh, there's different species who work in groups. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah. Yeah. So I'm obsessed. It's not even uniquely to humans. So that's yeah. what I'm saying. I think it's going to bankrupt me eventually, but for now, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't think so. Anyway, um, I, 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 it feels like you play it very safe financially. You're not a person who's like, I'm going to throw everything in and uh, we'll no, just see true. what happens. No, it's actually all completely budgeted and financed for. But anyway, uh, yeah. this week, though, like, <laughs> you maybe develop accounting <laughs> software. So. 
but there's like a there's a funny uh, there's a there's a funny uh, segue there, which is that like um, if we're going to talk about music anyway and technology and thinking about it culturally, um, I guess it wasn't this week, but a couple of weeks ago, Spotify uh, went public finally. It seems like that was like the longest. Uh, like waiting for IPO kind of tech because they've yeah. been around forever. Maybe right? maybe, maybe uh, we should also do an episode about IPOs and going public because and initial it, it coin seems, offerings now too ICOs. Yeah, but it seems like um, whenever a company goes public, it's really hard to maintain control and stay spontaneous and and have that energy, the, the startup energy. Well, the reason they do it usually is to raise money for further, even more growth. Like, cause yeah. you can raise even just more on the but public market. But basically, just so I understand, when you go public, you chop up the company in shares, and people buy those shares, and the company gets the cash. Well, the thing is, they're already shares. It's just that the shares are private, and then it's like, now they're public. Um, okay, so so all the early investors like it when it goes public, because then they can right. cash in. Because then there's a market for their shares. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like I have uh, what are called options in the company I work for. And then those have a certain strike price, uh, which is like the price that uh, they were worth when they were given to me. Um, and then as the price goes up, um, you know, I make a profit on that, essentially. But I can't unless there's someone to sell it to. And I, there's not really usually anyone to sell it to until there's like a public uh, like market for that. That's yeah, unless you're like a super hot company, even before you're public. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Some companies. But there's probably will trade. Y- you might have a, a contractual agreement not to sell. So. Yeah, but in this particular case with Spotify, they did something interesting, which is they decided to not issue any new stock or dilute any of the existing shares, and so it was like just the employees of Spotify that had like sort of this option to yeah they uh, kind of did the rogue version that it's not where you don't pay uh, a lot of financial uh, analysts and uh, people to calculate everything but anyway it's kind of interesting because you know like this they still don't make money and but they've completely changed uh, music um, and it's I, I think talking about music it would be interesting even just for us to go back yeah, I, w- I was just listening to a, an album. I still listen to albums, but then mm-hmm. often there's one or two songs that I turn off. But I remember the days when I would go to a CD store, and uh, I, I'm not that old that I would buy vinyl, so I was buying CDs. And then mm-hmm. I, I would I would value it, you would listen to the CD in the store. It's like, hey, can I listen to these three CDs? And you decide which one to buy if it didn't have too many bad tracks, because you can't really skip a song when you're you can't uncheck a song like you can in a digital library. So you put the CD in and it's the 12, 15 songs. And you can skip it, but you have to walk to your stereo. So I remember that that uh, balancing act of buying an album. If, mm. if there's, you know, all killer, no filler. If it's all cool or if it's, you only like three songs. Right. Yeah, you really did care about the album. And I think a lot of people have said yeah, that. Yeah, and, and, and it's not, not just that you care about it in an ideological way. It's that you care about it. It's like, am I getting my $12 worth? Because, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know, I, I would get a monthly allowance from my parents and then have a little job. And I would uh, all I would spend on was music. So what was the, it was like the al- the first album you decided, like, hey, I only have like $50 in the world. Well, there, was, gonna... there was Nirvana. Yeah? Teen, yeah. teen Spirit? 
the the album the Nevermind, and then oh, I Nevermind. think after that it was no, Kraft- sorry, it's not Teen Spirit's the song, right? Nevermind's the with the baby and the and the yeah yeah that's the album right? yeah I was I was the too classic. young for the album before that, but uh, um, but then every every time you would hear people say oh this is cool this is cool so then you go to the store and it's like oh, should I get Soundgarden or Pearl Jam and then you listen to both of them and say like, oh, I think I like Soundgarden Soundgarden more. yeah yeah <laughs> but and now all I'm saying is that over time. Mixtapes, uh, CDR, and then MP3s mm-hmm. through uh, uh, LimeWire and through Hotline and all these other yeah. things. And but even then, you would still decide I don't want to fill up my hard drive too much. And so we've we've moved more and more. What I find most interesting of streaming music is this hopping around, where mm-hmm. it is really. It, I used to be pretty strict on genres and say that this is not pure and this is not part of me. And and now you just go from world music to classical music mm. to contemporary composers to hip-hop in in five minutes right i mean i i, I before i go we go there to the out you know the, the and the way algorithms maybe suggest music and all of this stuff i just wanted to like reflect on what you were just saying which is like i went from this media to this media to that media and just in my own experience growing up this all happened, like at least in my memory, very very fast. Like, but, uh, did, did you have a when? How was music for you in the beginning? Was it radio or okay? Were you, so, were you interested in music? We got a CD player really really early, like in the 1980s in my house. Um, and my my older brother and my dad like did a whole, you know, bro dad and and son thing, and they got this amazing stereo, this amazing CD player. We had had a records for a little while that I could barely remember um, when I was a bit younger, and then like we had the CD collection. And so my first experiences were like this curated collection. Cause they just like bought like a library of different, like classic music. So by it classic, had like, I mean, like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin yeah. and yeah, Michael like had all the Beatles albums. Yeah. We had all the Led Zeppelin albums. We had, yes. Yeah, like, I don't know, like Crosby, Stills and Nash or Tom Petty or uh, anyway, like all this kind of classic rock. And that's what I had. And I would play that stuff. But then that I Was didn't there a really particular one that you liked. Um, yeah, I like John Lennon a lot. Back then. I had the, the song "Imagine" was my favorite song. Oh, that's funny. You're such a, <laughs> I always imagine you as a as an icon for UNICEF. Like, hey. <laughs> uh, anyway, I also liked Hotel California. Uh, yeah. Anyway, like they're like, hey, know. Jeremy, do you want to listen to Black Sabbath? No, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I would not like that. But all, all I'm saying, I actually didn't have much attachment to the music. But then, in very quick succession, I got like a Walkman. And then, like, my sister, like, gave me a mixtape. And then, like, I really liked certain songs on that. And I'd play them again. Like, personal yeah, music I, took I, over. I have to rewind it. I also had tapes before CDs. So, yeah, there was... I had yeah, the Walkman and, and the shutting yourself off from the world. Yeah, like, I can just remember, like, my head propped against, you know, my car window. It's raining outside. My parents are driving me somewhere. I'm like, fuck this shit. I'm going to put on some Weezer. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. like... <laughs> life sucks yeah. and but it was very personal and then i got like a my discman uh which was like a walkman that was uh with cds oh, we have to it. put in the show notes gary gullman has a good bit about the discman oh it was terrible the, but everyone all the knew functions it that it had is like we, we have regular <laughs> we have bass and then we have mega bass <laughs> 
<laughs> and I had it. That's <laughs> true. I had it for just like. And it had a shockproof thing where it, you would walk around and it would remember the last four seconds. So, it, but yeah, after four seconds, it would t- skip anyway. That was what I had. I had like <laughs> I had like one of their sports shock ones, and it's like it was shockproof only for like the first two steps, and then after the, the <laughs> yeah, you're riding like, your bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it didn't. It wasn't really portable, so you could really just use it in the car, kind of thing, sit around. And then I had the first iPod, um, but before that, actually, I started m- mixing CDs. But before that, even like a kid at school was selling mixed CDs. Like he was like downloading stuff from LimeWare and Napster and stuff. And, and, and were was, you like, going to concerts? Um, I was not yet, not in high school. I was too young. So he, you know, he, I was looking through this book of songs and like picking out songs and like h- hanging out with friends and talk talking about music, I guess. But anyway, people would like sell these. I don't know if you had this in your school, but bootleg CDs were like a thing in school. Like it, it was came like buying a little drugs. bit later at at the end of high school, I think. Yeah. Okay. And then I was like, but I remember thinking, like asking him about it. I was like, how do you get all this music? And because at the time there was only like 28 baud modems or 56K baud modems. And so that's like 5K per second. And he's like, oh, I just like have this, my internet connection up 24 seven and it downloads music in these packages um, that I get from like some pirate source. Some I don't news even look. Net thing where it's yeah. like little bits. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't even look at it. It's just a constant. It's partial stream. files. Yeah. I just buy hard drives to fill them, and I was like, "Whoa!" Like it just blew <laughs> my mind. It's like, what is this person doing? But it, they have yeah. all the music in the world. But um, it sounds like you uh, uh, you didn't go to record store as much. Well, the point I wanted to make there was like in that moment, even in the 90s, we were moving from this very personal media, like the Walkman with the one tape that your friend gave you or your mixtape to this like, like kind of like um, celestial jukebox where like all yeah, of the yeah, music. But, but, but I'm curious in the, in the personal experience before yeah. that you had access to everything, if the record store or anything had an influence on you in, in mm. your choosing. Because, for example, I was into punk and metal and hardcore all these things and then in the booklets they would thank other bands that they were into yeah and and then that would be your guide of like oh i should check this out i should check that yeah. out because there were no hyperlinks and so because I, my taste was so niche you couldn't just uh turn on the tv and the top 40 tells you what to listen to yeah i'm trying to remember so the first album i bought was like prodigy and that was through like my friends uh, like prodigy's experience album Pretty cheesy album, actually. Um, yeah, it's high energy, but it's classic. Like every song is danceable. Yeah, <laughs> gonna take it's, your brain. It's to good music dimension. for coding, right? Yeah, and then but then the next is album. Is there an I album bought, called Music for Coding, like Brian Eno's Music for Airports? Uh, I don't know. Um, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> write that down. Um, but then the next album I bought, I think, was like um, I know it was Aphex Twins. Um, Oh God! What's the name of the album? It was like the album with the cello and all. Oh, fuck, uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember. Anyway, but like the next uh, next song by Bob was by. All his albums are called Burglary. Exactly, it's like Burler yeah. Burp. Yeah. <laughs> but at that moment, I like my tastes shifted radically. Just so you know, um, to electronic music. Yeah, and I and I banned all guitar music. Yeah, um, because I'm interested so. in that sort of ideological shift where you're like. Mm-hmm. I'm the digital person, and this is my identity. Yeah, well, I was already really into computers, and then I was like, okay, my identity is about computers. I'm only going to listen to computer music. And I got yeah, so I, I had a, a very long delay before I entered computers because I, I think my whole identity was around music and guitar. So I liked 
silkscreen stuff or xeroxed or uh, mm-hmm. comic books and th- that atmosphere and not uh yeah you know yeah well that that's i mean it's what you're but, exposed uh, well, to one right? of the interesting things to me is that um for teenagers often imagery is collected to music mm-hmm. so they i don't know if it's still the same but it used to be the posters you see in a teenage bedroom are either f- related to music or movies and maybe to games mm-hmm. but not the idea of the autonomous image that the uh, you just get an image by an artist without any narrative connection to uh, any other form of entertainment so you mean you mean like a non-musician artist like a visual artist or yeah like not many people will have right. uh and, and i was always interested in music has this democratic distribution and it, it there's a popular vote Mm-hmm. And art has this more elitist distribution with a vote by a, a narrow group of people. Yeah. But there's not a form. So there's comic book artists, but that's tied to a narrative and, and like maybe a universe of characters. And you could have posters of your favorite bands and they could have interesting photography mm-hmm. uh, or, or interesting. But nobody has like, what's the equivalent of an 18 year old artist that just makes posters for teenagers Without a band or a <clears throat> book character, and so oh right, there's no one just making posters themselves. Yeah, right. so it's 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 very normal for an 18 year old to make music and distribute it themselves directly to people their own age, mm-hmm. and have like an indie distribution. And uh, music has this idea of you have a manager, and the manager is about the age of the band, and there's promoters, and you, you can have all these young people making art for young people, but it's it's. Uh, music but mm-hmm. it's art in the form of sound but what's the equivalent of that visually where you make art for people in that age category hmm. i mean <clears throat> besides art because i think some teenagers like i mean like some but i, I just I, I know very few like teenagers who, who hang contemporary <clears throat> images in the in the room yeah, that are not connected to skateboarding or hip-hop or no, you're making a good games point, like, yeah, uh, like there, the exceptions would be like uh, Frida Kahlo or or like um, like. But Dolly how many teenagers do you really? Yeah, but that's even older think, stuff. But like people Frida their Kahlo. own. I mean, people their own age. Like you grew up. I oh, love I FX Twin, and he's like he's a little bit he's older, 20s, but it's, maybe, it's, yeah. it's your generation. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah, what yeah, would yeah. be the equivalent of a visual artist that you would be into at that time and have works hanging on your wall? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I didn't do that. I so what, had, what like, I'm trying Van to say Go is that then something. the imagery like Aphex Twin was connected to the Designers Republic and that mm-hmm. was like a, a whole movement with Warp Records, etc. So Yeah, Warp was... That's, by the way, when you were asking earlier, how did I find my next album? My next album, it was all just through Warp. Mm-hmm. Like, I was... I would... It was the label that I followed. Yeah. Uh, which doesn't mean anything to anyone anymore. Like, no, but it's, it's it's interesting that you you can imagine you were the teenager discovering a whole new world, and then there's like someone falls into a lot of money, and they're like, oh, I want to start collecting art, and they will follow a curator or a gallery mm-hmm, the same mm-hmm. way you follow Warp Records. Yeah, but I wouldn't follow Warp today. And another one was Ninja Tune, which was yeah. a Montreal label that was like known for acid jazz um, and hip-hop, kind of trip-hop, all of those like sub-genres of electronic music and hip-hop. But like, um, yeah, it was it was very much about the taste makers. There were certain editorial voices. I didn't follow. Yeah, it wasn't yeah, like yeah. I listened so, to. And, and maybe that's like. that's the point we're getting at of like mm-hmm. these these structures of gatekeepers and and the the pros and cons of that. 
Yeah, because I might, like, a little later, I might read, like, Vice magazine, and I would see, like, okay, what, I'd look at the music section, and then a little bit after that, as I got more mature, I'd, like, go to my favorite record shop, and I'd, like, talk to the staff, and I'd be like, oh, what's coming out, what's going on. And and, and um, your friends in school? And and my friends, yeah, but my friends were, like, I, I became less and less like my friends, because I got more oh. and more into digi- digital music, right? So it's I was more and more the weird person uh in my school i would say but uh yeah like at first for sure like the it way is I- really always interesting seeing kids growing up and there's this age where they're just uh, they don't belong to any group and they just play mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden 12 13 they're like okay i'm this yep yeah it's yeah. very distinct it's very uh, but music was a big part of how i i definitely define my identity at yeah that age. so yeah. yeah even your persona today is like but I would. I thought the point you were going to try and make was like really what stuck with me, even at that early age, which would transcend art if there was a way to access it. And one of the reasons why I think art does have a larger audience than we give it credit for, but was that the ideology of electronic music and electronic musicians, musicians at least to me as a young, uh, like a younger teenager, it was like this is really exciting. No one's talking like this, right? Mm. Like my teachers don't even understand what I'm talking about when I talk like this. To me, the, the ideology of uh Electronic music always seemed like a very down-to-earth, made-in-the-bedroom and no uh, drama attached to it. But I mm-hmm. guess Prodigy is different. But well, Prodigy of, was silly, though. Like you Yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of electronic music acts, when they play live, you're not even sure if they're playing live. Because they're yeah. just sitting. It's, it, it's like the, it looks like they're checking their email. Prodigy was famous for having, like, you know, playing 25 synthesizers at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw them live twice, I think, at festivals growing mm-hmm. up. Yeah. I think the other thing that shaped me was my older brother was a house music DJ and would sort of like go to different venues and play the, the, and go to raves the, uh, and things. The other thing that I'm just thinking about now is that when electronic music came up and they had this problem that they didn't have the physical presence of a classic rock band, mm-hmm. then they had to be creative. So they invented the VJ and the, the big uh, light uh, and, and media art sort of was attached to yeah, like I, thought, I think that's. That, I was hoping we might get to talk about it. It's kind of an exciting thing that happened. Which but is, it was really f- like creativity coming out of a problem because there's there's something so powerful about a group of four or five people uh, playing their instruments at maximum volume, and then you're like, well, our music is more like collage, so that we don't really make it live. And uh. yeah, like you know, the, you go to your first electronic music show and you're like, whoa, I never sounded like this at home. However, then it's like there's just some guy standing with fog behind him or some some woman with fog behind her on stage, and you're like, okay, there's like not much going on here to watch. Like, I get, but it, then it becomes more the D, the cult of the DJ already started in the '90s, and it became more about the people around you, which well, I was really in the 70s? interesting. Oh yeah, sorry, if you go yeah. way further back, but I just mean like. Um, yeah, you're right. You're right. I was just thinking like rave DJs. And then like, I remember there were people like uh, John Aquaviva and like, um, I don't know, others that were making like a million dollars to play one show or yeah, one rave. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what I, I mean, actually, I was a little too young to go to rave. So I caught the tail end of that, that culture. Um, my brother was like hugely into it. But what I find interesting about it culturally, and at least what I was like watching from my bedroom as like a teenager was like, oh, it's like 
it's not about it, it's it's less about the band and more about like people getting together um and this like culture of like dressing up creatively and so like the actual performance happened in the audience which i found really cool at first uh, i don't know if you remember that candy rave era uh-huh. but like the people would dress up in just like really yeah, fun yeah, ways yeah. i was um, always so very th- against that as a teenager i thought that was the lamest thing <laughs> Well, subculturally, it's very creative. Like, they're acting like art, little performance artists. Yeah, but it's also a little bit, to me, it's like um, almost a cliche of creativity. Creativity Mm. means you put rainbow colors on your face. (laughs) (laughs) I see what you're saying. It's like, oh, yeah, you're a butterfly. How cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so creative. <laughs> no, you're right. Like, and then eventually you do get over it very quickly. The ne- the la- like the tenth time you see someone it's all in waves, fire yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, but you're right. So then, like, what happened was like the audio, like the stage show, had to get better, and visuals became associated with electronic music. But it does visuals like go way, 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 way back, right? Like all the way back to oh, yeah, expressionism yeah. and visual music. The 1970s that you mentioned is actually where I think it gets associated with live musical performance and associated like, with the chemical enhancement yeah because like jefferson airplane and other bands started to or like do these like um oil and light kind of like trippy psychedelic like lava yeah. lamp like visuals the pre-byob um, mm-hmm. yeah exactly and and that was like that was they were riffing off proto of like screensavers <laughs> yeah and they were riffing off what like some artists had done before that, actually, right? In terms yeah. of um, visual music experimentations and that, like, you know, people that were playing with painting on film, like Stan Brackage and others. Um, but eventually, that does like it still persists today. I think the the one like thing I just wanted to get out there, which is like, I I tr- so as someone who made media art or new media, I was a- I was asked quite a lot to do like visuals when I was especially when I was younger. And I just couldn't get over the fact of how disrespectful it was to the artists. Um, because I'd be like, there's be the DJ would be like on stage or in the foreground. And then they'd be like, oh, yeah, this booth in the back is like for you. Or can you just be off stage? And yeah. so I, I found that to be troubling. Cause I, I, was like, I was very fascinated with this idea of VJing. And I saw so that in the Netherlands, there was a whole club scene and there was interesting visual art connected to it. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in that sort of democratic distribution and another platform for art outside of the serious academic institutions. Because they really were quite stale, the academic institutions. It really felt like that would not be a good place for me. Mm-hmm. So I saw the clubs and I didn't like the music, but I liked the idea of making moving images for dancing people and all this stuff. So I was interested in it, but it wasn't really my world musically. So mm-hmm. I I interned for a company that, that VJ'd, and I, I was very curious, how do you make interesting images that have to fill up six hours of dancing? Because mm-hmm. a, a, making an interesting film, like Space Odyssey 2001, uh, takes millions and millions, and fi- it takes five years to make an hour and a half or two hours. So how do you make mm-hmm. six hours on a no st- budget? So I interned for a few months, and we worked on a on a set, on like a set of imagery that you could mix, and this was all on VHS tapes, and then you have the mixing decks. And I found out that what you create, you create maybe three or four seconds of interesting footage and the rest is filler. Mm-hmm. There's no way of making six hours of interesting material in well, half a year. So th- this yeah. idea of the VJ and the tapes and the... And I understand it's more about... An ex- but uh, no, you know, I, but guess, you- I guess I was trying to make moving paintings... 
which I think and the intensity of the single thing you don't find in the VJ right. thing. Well, yeah, so that, that's one thing. But you, you're hinting at like a good point that I think we need to also uncover, which is that like this this ask or this problem. So yeah, the the music needs a visual. Let's hire these like you know someone to do quote unquote visuals. Yeah, then and also the make- the idea of the music is is a, like you said the DJ is what counts. So it's you're not thinking of songs, but you're thinking of a, a four hour event and, and yeah. escapism. Yeah. But I just want to say, like, technically what happens, at least if you look at the software, because I, I like I was using all of the different software that was being developed for VJs, is that it gets more and more sophisticated at creating live generative visuals uh, in the last, like, 20 years, right? Like, it's still evolving, actually. And one of the pieces of software that I was using was Max. And, like, live coding would became, started to become a little bit a part of, like, how people were doing visuals. But do you like, really think that software makes the... the I'm just saying that, interesting visuals. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying what's interesting or not. I'm just saying what happens ha- has happened technically. And when you go see like a live show today, even if it's not an electronic musician, is usually software is running b- behind the scene. Custom you mean software. Software to sync uh, the the sound yeah. volume and the the yeah. the, the changes in the music. Well, someone is usually performing that software. But the software also is usually like generating the visual, not from like a clip. But like it might be doing like bot like 3D scanning yeah, yeah, of the yeah. stage it's, or it's audience. It's maybe more like, that I'm, I'm like, very heavy on editing. So to me, I really want what you see to be, you know, the idea. The same with an album, not not just the filler. Yeah, but like li- which I'm just saying, like live code, like code running on stage, yeah. became a thing because of this DJ visualist problem. Yeah, yeah and yeah. maybe it would have become a thing anyway, but I'm not so sure. Like, or if it would have happened as quickly, maybe we'd still have like oil well, lava it, lamps it, or something. It, it, it's obvious that if you, well, the VJ was supposed to be like a DJ, so you, you have a set of records and you mix. So you had mm-hmm. you have two tape decks and you have the two VHS tapes. You fill them with loops and then maybe you can put some layer over it. Mm-hmm. And you're mixing that way, but you're mixing manually. So you're listening to the music and you're responding to the DJ. And, yeah. Um, but a friend of mine, like he, when the Connect came out, for example, um, he was friends with management. You know that band management. Yeah. Da, da, electric field, whatever. <laughs> and they're like, "Hey, that's really cool. Why don't you come on tour with us?" So he like went on their first tour. He wrote uh, he wrote the software while he was on tour with them and debugged it every night. And it was the software that allowed them to walk through on on the stage forward and backward um, through different visual treatments and planes. So they were controlling. Mm. the actual mixing of the the visual by moving through space yeah almost like moving through layers um and he was like debugging that every night and getting it right he wasn't actually like choosing what visuals he was making software for the yeah, band yeah, yeah. um yeah it's one of those things that's really hard to understand afterwards or outside of the concert yeah but i think like when you see a really tight uh band performance with a visual like it actually sometimes like i think it's like one in a hundred times you're like holy moly I, yeah like that yeah. was a, a unique experience and i know that like the investment in these experiences is is greater and greater you, the first time it occurred to me that it, we had like jumped the shark in terms of the visual being almost more important than the audio was when daft punk did uh its big world tour and they spent i remember they were boasting over a million dollars on just the visual stage production 
And so, like, just for that, not to, they, like, obviously it costs way more to do the tour, but just, like, investing in that one thing, they're like, no, they we're going to put a million dollars. They took it very seriously, yeah. Yeah, so, like, okay, now you're into, like, major software budgets, right? <laughs> uh, you're building sets. It's, like, it's really, like, a whole, you know. Yeah, now if you look at the Super Bowl, that's, like, the epitome of production. Yeah, yeah. The Super Bowl and halftime show. Maybe, like I said, maybe we would have got there anyway, but I do think it's interesting, um, you know, to consider that, that, like, visual, the person doing visuals in the corner is now really actually like a software company developing yeah. a unique experience. But there, to me, there's a, uh, an, essential, <clears throat> an essential problem that you addressed that um, you're, you're literally making background material. Yeah. And you can, you can justify it, you can talk about it, you can say, no, it's a marriage between the two, but really, people come for the band. Should I tell and, you what I did? No, when, no, when, but, uh, but what I'm trying to say is that I think a lot of artists would be happier to have a democratic distribution of their work. Like Not everybody wants to make work for living rooms of old people. Mm -hmm. But nobody wants to be, oh, I did the background for Daft Punk. <laughs> such, I did the such background. a brutal, brutal way of putting living rooms of old people. Yeah. Um, well, when I, was, when I was asked to do visuals, I did do it a few times, and I came up with this performance, which, hey, it wasn't popular. <laughs> But uh, it was like I would do. I would be in front of the band, <laughs> and I would do live painting, like live digital paintings. Mm, mm, mm. And my point at the time was, "Fuck the like the band is my background music yeah, yeah. for my painting." <laughs> yeah, and like like it. I said, it wasn't popular because they were booking bands, not me. <laughs> but I did get to do it. Yeah, twice. but it's it's the age group. It's it's. I think if if uh, Damien Hurst would do an opera, maybe uh, like he would do the set design. Maybe more people would come for the opera. But if he did it for uh, Beyonce, not many people would know who Damien Hurst is. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it, it is really interesting to consider the pop artist in relationship to the pop musician and whether or not there are any artists that transcend at least in teenage culture because that's what you're talking about actually the hypothesis or the the thesis that you're sort of presenting is that like yeah a, the teenage mind is only so sophisticated what popular it's media not, but, well, uh, i think the teenage <laughs> mind is is about explosive energy yeah and i i think uh, art is um, a more reflective part of the brain so it just comes at a later age. I don't want to say one is more sophisticated than the other. No, I think, no that's a good point. That's but a good point. but um, it, I do think that it's strange. I always found it very strange, especially when I was young, to relate to old people when I'm making my work. So mm -hmm. I just I, I know that an artist can make work for themselves and ignore the rest of the world, but still you're like talking to people who control the exhibition space so they're like oh so what do you mean and and when you have a band you don't have those same questions when there's like someone saying well how does this address the gender issues it's like no mm -hmm. i'm just, just wanting to fuck shit up <laughs> and like that's what but, you want to do so it, that equivalent for a visual artist who's 18 and wants to start a band and speak to their own age that's graffiti though that's street art right yeah. like i think uh -huh. that that is the if you were going to find a facsimile for that age group and that feeling, that rebelliousness, right? Like that you're, the energy you're talking about, it would be like, you know, yeah, it would be in the Shepherd Fairies, the Barry McGee's, the like um, But what, what's, what's funny is that, is that their work visually is so conservative. Those folks that I just mentioned? Like, yeah, the, that it, uh, when, when you look at it art historically and just see 
Yeah. It, it, regardless, like, whoa, they no, post... No, no, you're right, yeah. I mean, early graffiti was quite fresh, but uh, the, the, the next wave no, now is, is basically... Yeah. It, it looked like illustration of a century before. There are, like, tropes around that. That's why I remember when I was, like, in my young 20s, it was very exciting when graffiti research labs sort of emerged as this, um, this movement out of New York with a bunch of people who are now pretty um, well-known artists, like... Eddie Wagonack and I don't, I don't, other people that were part of Fat Lab, um, without me I, like naming everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this idea that there were there was like this new movement around digital graffiti. Now, like yeah. it didn't actually turn into a movement, as far as I can tell. Like it was just an art collective <laughs> that was working, but that did that did kind of resonate with me. But you're, you're you're pointing at something really interesting, which is like there is very little experimentation in the pop- popular spectrum of art, right? In terms of like, and making it accessible to well, it, yeah. larger audiences. Yeah. And, and I think in music, you can have quite challenging music intellectually that is still consumed by 14 year olds. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you said, like you might discover um, noise music when you're 14 or 15 and listen to stuff that is, uh, uh, quite difficult and challenging mm-hmm. and has a lot of but it's made by quite young people and i don't know it's it's very interesting this this difference in age groups and the different part of the brain like they, of course there are 14 year olds that are interested in architecture but in general people at a later age discover walking through cities like oh that's why buildings are the way they are right 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 and and for some reason music hits your brain very young and and uh, becomes part of your identity but the the real really like one of the things you're hinting at though, which maybe is like, what if there you know in music, music is just graffiti and it, it actually aesthetically the way the music that we that we listen to that's popular <laughs> is really at the aesthetic level of graffiti and street art and it's no. not more. Oh, I, I, no. I dropped the bomb. You, you think if you're 14 and you're listening to... Uh, I, I'm just saying 14-year-olds don't listen to... Neubauten, that it's like Shepard Fairey? <laughs> I'm, say, I'm saying that maybe they're not listening to like John Cage or, you know, they're not listening to theoretical music. They're not listening to like... Yeah, but, but still, I don't know. Yeah. I, I like, have n- I'm not going to try to put the value judgment and say which which is. I think uh, as far as they'll go is like Philip Glass or something. Else. Yeah, like, but but I I, I I don't think Philip Glass is so interesting. But exactly, that's my point, though, right? Like that's a sophisticated. Sorry, I keep using that term, but like that's as that's as far off of the deep. You're talking end. about the high low culture divide. Basically, it's like. Yeah, do you like broccoli and Brussels sprouts when you're that age? Either? No, like like your palate has to like get past this. No, point. I, I don't agree with you here. No, because if, <laughs> I'm making if a you, snobby argument. Yeah, but but would you say that Joy Division because they use a, a regular pop song so, song structure that it's the same as uh, No, I'm Shepherd just Fairy? You would uh, you would like yeah, it'd be the same thing with the LCD sound system, which I consider to be like good pop art. Like it does. Like, okay, well, I, I don't think this is gonna go anywhere except saying <laughs> that's lame and that's cool. No, but all I'm saying is like you would enter into it on like I can listen to this. It's listenable. It's fun, right? And we like you might get a little bit deeper than that. Oh yeah, like it's countercultural. But how how deep in are people really gonna go theoretically at that age? I don't I don't remember being like wow like. Um, Richard D. James is like really messing with the tonal structure. Yeah, but my whole my whole are... point is that it's um, this idea of deep is very strange to me because I mm-hmm. I think 
when you're a teenager and you're not reading theory, but the song hits you very deep in your identity and forms you, that's much deeper than later reading uh, uh, a long book of cultural theory, which hits you very superficially only in the rational part of your brain. Okay, then you're making a really good point, which is that art, you know, is often over academic or excludes very brainy like let's emotions yeah right yeah yeah exactly and so, so that's so less that deep that's more superficial deep is when it really hits you everywhere both when it when you understand intellectually like you can understand ideologically hey we're in a new time so we should use electronic instruments and not try to emulate old sounds mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's an ideological rational point of view but then you're also like well this song really hits me and makes me cry or makes me think of the first time I did such and such mm-hmm. and uh, so it's more layered than yeah. than reading a Zizek book and going like oh yeah <laughs> but Zizek managed to get quite popular yeah, but, uh, yeah. but, but like, you know, I'm, I'm just talking about the idea of theory is a very rational thing to me mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. no I hear you saying and there's nothing I mean, wrong with it but um, music music is emotional, but like that's how I talked about my early music experience, right? It was yeah. really around my emotions. Yeah, feeling but but this alone. this the, I heard similar discussions about people critiquing a superficial reading of art if people take selfies with art, mm-hmm. and like why is that superficial? Or maybe it, if if a twelve year old goes to the museum and photographs themselves with the Jeff Koons, and later on in life they discover all kinds of other stuff, those are the formative years. That's a very yeah, I used and to so have in a, a sense, that's deeper than the the layers that come after when you become more sophisticated or more when you know more. No, you're right, and there's something inside of a, us as young artists that like pushes us away from making work that's really about those feelings and emotions, like the 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 the, the kind of universal. Yeah, that you're like talking a, f- about. a friend of mine said, he, "Yeah, I really like Van Gogh, but people told me that it's too comic book like and that it's actually kind of populist, so I'm not supposed to like it." <laughs> and other people told me, yeah, I, I was never able to admit, but I really like David Hockney. Don't tell anyone. Who like says, this, like, everyone like, likes David Hockney, though. No, like, but no there, there are serious collectors who uh, want to differentiate, and they're like, oh, we want to know the things that other people don't know. And so for them, David Hockney is too popular. Yeah, but like, every, I mean, it's a very charming like amazing career no i don't think anyone i mean the ipad stuff we i don't know maybe i'm hanging with the wrong people (laughs) (laughs) okay but they're like yeah yeah i I, please don't tell anyone but i really like david hockney (laughs) (laughs) i think it may be like chuck close would be like that for me or something like that like yeah it'd be like um it's just like g whiz art kind of thing Mm -hmm. but um, you know, the, it's basically the equivalent of a marijuana, but, like but, a psychedelic, mar- like a cannabis leaf or something. The other thing that's funny, I was talking about it yesterday. So a lot of, a lot of music uh, you can summarize in like, I hate my parents, I want to do my own thing. So you have all these musicians who write their version of I hate my parents, I want to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. And then they grow older and they still have to sing that song. <laughs> <laughs> and so part of me, when I saw music, and especially when I was younger, I was like, I don't want to make art for old people. So you're kind of envious of that uh, distribution. But now that I'm older, I'm like, thank God I don't have to sing I Hate My Parents when I'm 50. Well, I think a really great song, a really great musician, and this is true for art as well, that whatever they wrote when they were that age, the meaning changes. You know, one of my favorite versions of this uh, is Yoko Ono's cut piece or cut performance, which is like when she was a young woman and having like men jump on stage to cut pieces of her dress off, that meant one thing, right? Like that, and it reflected society in one yeah. way. When she's an old woman and she's like, but what not about able the, to like 
the Rolling um, Stones singing I Can't Get No Satisfaction. <clears throat> well, in a way, like, because I, I would have felt the same thing, but I went and saw, like, ACDC when they were, like, you know, in their 70s or 60s or yeah. 70s. And it was, like, incredibly inspiring because there are these old guys with all this youthful energy. And there's, like, yeah. at every age level, there's these expectations. You alluded to them earlier, right? Like, my, fr- my friends or this person said, I can't behave this way or can't think that way. Um, and when you're young and 17, there, a lot of people are telling you what you can and can't do. Yeah. And then you yeah. are making this first choice. Like, no, I am going to like align myself with this tribe of people that like behave in this way and listen to this kind of music. And these are our signals. And then at some point you lose control of that narrative. Yeah, I think, I think uh, Joe Strummer, the, the singer of The Clash, said that uh, for him, music was about uh, uh, sharing that it's fun to be alive. Yeah, and and that's yeah. the funny I mean, thing is- in academics. And, and I read, an, I saw another interview with a art critic, and he was critiquing ac- academicism. He said, "You know what you guys did, all the academics? You killed the fun. You you took all the fun out of art. You made it forbidden, and you're gonna pay a price." My argument, though, is you know, is that like you can it can be academic and fantastically fun. Um, but do you like, see examples just, of that when you go to panel talks? If you compare well, a panel talk like a to pa- a music like, show. That's like such a low blow to the art world. <laughs> you choose the one <laughs> format that like zero people. Zero Yeah, fun. well, like when I'm on a... I always perform on panels or I cause controversy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, you, ha- you have to have fun though. Like I said, I always used to say like it was my tagline. If you're not having fun, stop doing it. Um, and for me, academic being academic, is, <laughs> you should have said that to uh, what's the name, Ian Curtis of Joy Division. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> He's like, okay, I'll stop. Yeah, and he did. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just gonna. I do think fun and that youthful energy, like people Eddie Reist, is, has always been held up as an example of that in art, right? And she actually probably transcended on a few occasions that popular barrier. By simply not being, she's yeah, not same not with Laurie Anderson, but she's where she walked that Laurie line. Laurie Anderson, yeah, yeah, Laurie Anderson, musician and artist, uh, great example. I didn't even think of that until now, but um, yeah, I think it's it's possible, but it's hard. Just like there are not like that that many bands that appeal widely and are conceptually interesting. There are very few artists that that manage to make in, and transcend. That, I always cringe that when people say conceptually interesting. Well, what would you say instead? Like that are just breaking interesting. New ground or that something? are interesting. Why do yeah. you say conceptually? It's, yeah. Because it's critical that I say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's this weird thing I remember seeing talks about new media art and like what's the difference between good memes and new media art? Is well, memes are superficial. It's like really? Can you really say that? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know. Yeah, I know. But it's very it's very difficult for people if there's no boundaries. It's like, oh, but wait, I, I'm supposed to treat my bookmarks equally to biennials. Uh, no, that's yeah. that's too much responsibility. Yeah. So the question. So you, the, the good point you've been making is like music is fun. Art's boring. Who are the artists that are having fun? And, <laughs> yeah. But then and, it, and frankly, it's, it's all very complicated because I'm also really interested in boredom as a as a way of being so it's it's um mm. and the same with music music is supposed to be fun and then you grow mm. up as a teenager and everybody's going to happy hardcore raves and like with okay, well, candy colors and then you're like oh let's yeah. make really obnoxious music that is about death and despair 
So I was reading an article this week about music and the way people are listening to music, and, and it's still a large group of people, especially young people, listen to music on YouTube. And in fact, li- li- like you know how YouTube has this live streaming option? Yeah. Uh, live streaming has become this form of pirate radio, and it's oh, like mostly being that's used... That's the new mixtape or the it, it's it, the pirate new mixtape. radio. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and the visuals actually matter a tremendous amount. There's like people that like there's a natural marriage there with the yeah, visual. They're, yeah. They're normally married right now with anime clips. Apparently, <laughs> of these stations, and it's like all 18 year olds that are like running the top stations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But ag- and, again, the the visual component is from popular culture, and so it's it anime characters connected. So it's there's this distinct and it's very interesting to me and one day we'll reverse engineer the brain and figure it all out but it's very mm-hmm. interesting to me that the teenage brain does not accept images in an autonomous way so they have to be connected to a subculture mm-hmm. but i think one thing that i find really thrilling about teenage subcultures and is their disregard for any of the rules we were just talking about because they're either naive to them or they're just like i don't care and there's no you know there's nothing in this for me and and it is important for us to remember that because I can also remember like this, uh, even just two years ago, like, you know, uh, SoundCloud kind of cloud rap movement where it was like internet persona mixed with rap music mm-hmm. mixed with like just crazy, like yeah. on stage and, and the complete, performances. Uh, but also the absence of on stage and just being very bored behind the uh, webcam and just mumbling and. No, yeah, I mean on stage in that they became these personas that yeah. would like, when they did live shows, they're not good live shows. It was really just all about the aesthetics of performance. Yeah. Um, and then like before that, I remember when I forgot to mention earlier when this software called Tractor came out that all of like the teenagers were doing these amazing remixes with beat matching that would would have been uh, you'd have to be like a, like a DJ that had been working for 30 years and suddenly you could do it as a teenager. And, you know, they were reinventing the mashup and like, you know, mimicking girl talk kind of albums. Uh, and there are just thousands of those kinds of mixes coming out. And I just think like that energy, you know, paired with technology is often really interesting uh, among teenagers. And I don't know if we've talked about that in relationship with music, but that's where like a lot of technical experimentation has happened traditionally. Right. And it's really experimental. Um, well, that's what I mean. This this. Uh, it, it, you're at that age and you're doing really experimental things and there's nothing superficial about it and it's, and it's completely theoretical as well. It's not practical. Yeah, it's almost like a little research. Though. Yeah. Like they're yeah, doing but, all this but, lab work. But then you you don't put it in the framework of uh, academic institutional John Cage type of music, but it's just mm-hmm. as experimental. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that's a good point to make, which is like, you know, how do we create the, you know, it's this, it, that is like the perfect storm of elements coming together at that age. Identity conflict, new technology, like curiosity, um, free time, <laughs> right? Like yeah. the the absence of like uh, free distribution of, of, of pressures around finance, probably. You know, yeah, yeah, free distribution. And then I think you know, like unfortunately, and add hormones that, to the mix. Well, not hormones to the mix, and then like you know, yeah, you you end up with some like some crazy stuff. Um, one, one oh, thing that I find interesting is, um, so as you grew up, uh, first music was on records without TV, and then the TV appeared, uh, and it was more connected to imagery, and then the CD appears, and then you can copy the CD, and as time goes by, the access gets very fluid, so you can just jump from genre to genre in, in, within a second, mm-hmm. and what that means to identity, that 
maybe before you were either a goth or a rapper and now you can just change outfits every five minutes and you're just a different person all the time and it doesn't matter yeah well a good friend of mine here in toronto is this guy tasman richardson and like about a decade ago he was he's a musician and he's like but he's also a visual artist and he started he would say he had this like idea and this thesis he called jawa i don't know why why it's called that but it was that's what he called it he's like every image has been made and every sound has been made and therefore i'll make music from uh from all of, like he'd go to video stores from all of the video clips ever made on the planet. I'll do these like cut up videos, but they'll also be musical compositions. So if like someone punches someone, that'll be like the bass or whatever. Um, and he, and he's like, and I can use all of history to compose like this amazing music that will refer to all of media history as well. Which is kind of a poetic thought, right? Like I think cold cut and other like, um, Ninja tune type people did, experimented with that as well. Um, but it's really just the definition of postmodernism. Like you have the whole book and you can flick through it like a flip book if you want. Um, and what does that do to our media and our understanding of it in progress? Um, is that the question you're asking or did I just like totally? <laughs> well, that's the whole <laughs> samplism. Uh, there was yeah. a whole movement uh, and, the, and the whole and that's like public enemy history. had a court case that they used too many samples. At the beginning of the recording industry, the copyright laws were not really formed so much yet. So you had hip hop albums that would just cut and paste all kinds of stuff. And it, and then the lawmakers caught on. And there's a few albums that today would not be able to be made that well, way. Well, really, though, still even today, like even the, the number one singles, Drake's new single or whatever, is like a, has a, a sample, I think, from a, like a 1970s album in it that... Um, like sampling yeah, but, is but still there's the, the there's the the Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique album where they they use the ridiculous amount of samples and like mm -hmm. the, the cost of that album in in today's laws would just be so high that it would okay, be able like, to be made. My quintessential example is usually like any Girl Talk album, and I think Girl Talk was like heavily litigated mm. because it's all it's a hundred percent samples. Yeah. There's nothing else. <laughs> and the, um, yeah, there was those mashup <laughs> albums, and yeah, I, I don't know. I'm always so bored by that topic of copyrights, but. Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's completely we're completely past that, especially in a post Tumblr, post post like you know people yeah. images, samples, music, all that is collage for um, the everyday now. It's like it's just like you're doing that in you know Apple's Clips program or Instagram's stories or you know snaps <laughs> whatever. But then you they know? do it's have like, alg algorithms to detect music and. At first, they were, they would take a video down, and now they have the approach of like, oh, this function as an ad for a song, so we can offer the song for sale below the video. Right. I mean, because YouTube has forty eight hours of content uploaded every uh, hour or something yeah. like that, or every minute. Yeah. I can't remember. It's crazy. They have to use algorithms to filter this stuff out. I Did think you like, have videos taken down because of the sound. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, of course. And yeah. in one in one hilarious example um, that's also tragic, I have sample a sample of like the first beheading in a video of mine uh, in Iraq, and uh, like a metal band sampled that as well, and then <laughs> like ten years later imposed a copyright on my video. Yeah. Um, so like. And it was, it's like totally crazy. And mm. then I have to like go to YouTube's tribunal and say like, actually, <laughs> this was like an important piece of art. Yeah, go stand in line for the tribunal. <laughs> yeah. There's only 700 billion people waiting. Um, but musicians have this like weird, uh, because they, I think because it's such a complicated legal 
like world and music like art often just skirts the law because it art has this like concept of we can do whatever we want musicians well, actually also because the numbers bit. of viewers are so small with art right yeah whereas musicians actually do adhere much more closely to copyright law and various uh, bodies <clears throat> in legislation but, yeah too. i i, I don't, we we can go down the copyright rabbit hole but uh I don't really want to. Yeah. I mean, I did. I would like us to circle back on Spotify, though, because that's where we started yeah. this conversation. And um, and different and software that we use to listen to music, right? Because we went post iPod, post um, like YouTube, we're, or maybe we're not there yet. But like we're in this world now where you can basically have all the music for free whenever you want. Yeah, that's funny. Um, it, it, when you say that, it means that you're not uh, into. There's a lot of music that's not on the streaming services. Well, there you go. Yeah, so, so, so this yeah. idea of the Celestial Jukebox, which sounds awesome, and they, maybe they have 10 million songs in their catalog, it sounds like a lot. But then, as you said, a lot of teenagers listen to SoundCloud and to YouTube and to uh, Bandcamp, because mm-hmm. all the new stuff is being created in other platforms, uh, other weird stuff. Yeah. Yeah, well, that... So, so that, if you have you a, a Siri or a, a Google Home and you want to ask it stuff... That doesn't really work for things that are very niche. Well, yeah, I was talking to a friend like this week Like, what's the about... interface for finding remixes in an audio computer? No, no, you're, and you're right. So, so, so basically what you're saying is, like, Spotify is like Walmart. Um, but you know, you, I was talking to a friend earlier this week, and I was remembering this app that I loved called Turntable.fm, and you would get together with friends in little chat rooms, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you DJed for each other, and it was, like, a very personal experience. Yeah, and so what's the equivalent of that when you... They, they, I'm, I'm curious how that will work out. I don't know if the voice-controlled computers are really going to catch on for music playing, mm-hmm. but it seems like the... Um, I mean, I use uh, it for playing music all the time, if you're talking about the, I know, the echo. But you, it, mm-hmm. that, that to me says you're not a serious music listener. No, I'd be like, you know, you, You're Alexa. just like, play some Joy Division. and they, but That's right. Yeah, so it... it <laughs> But what I mean is a teenager who has all the time in the world and is remixing stuff is not going to use a voice-controlled interface to discover music. Because mm-hmm. if you have like, oh, no, a friend of mine made a very specific mix and they responded to that in this way, I don't think you can ask Siri those questions. Right, right. That's, yeah. I think a friend of mine was working in music distribution and uh, marketing, and he said the number one question people ask these uh, Alexas and these series is play some music. Any music? Yeah, this is the number one question. Hey, <laughs> play some music. And, no, but they and, must and so the challenge, the challenge is to find out what people like and then uh, mm-hmm. maybe every now and then people say, oh, I don't like this song. And then it just... You know, yeah. Yeah. I would say, though, that part of that is the interface. So but you, that, no, no but part of that is also, identi- that was always the most shocking thing to me growing up as a teenager. I, my first question would be like, what kind of music are you into if I meet someone? Mm-hmm. And most people say, well, I like anything except the, the crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. And you want to meet the other people who are into crazy stuff, whatever the crazy stuff is. So No, but what I, when I say it's about the interface, it's because when you talk to an Echo, um, you have to say like, Alexa, play such and such, and you then have to pronounce it, right? And if it gets it wrong, it's very, you know, so you usually just say the artist because that's the easiest thing to say. And you can't remember the song. Oh, you say play Christmas music or play dinner music or stuff like that. Sure, but like if it was more sophisticated, you might be like, Alexa, play something uh, electronic from the 1970s that I haven't heard before that sounds a little bit like this. It can't answer that query, right? My, My thesis is that 
the voice computer is made for people with general taste. Yeah, like currently, but I'm just saying no, like the interface yeah, could be more I, I sophisticated. Think, I think the, the interface of a person who is both, uh, who's on the edge of producing and consuming, who's also yeah. remixing things, you won't do that with an audio interface. Okay. With a well, voice my, interface. That's what I'm here's saying. Got, here's my kind of final good point then, which is like, if you, if, have you, did you ever go to it's a It's the same thing store? as the difference between an iPad and a laptop. No, but I, I mean, like, replace that technology with a human being. And if you went to, like, a record store, which I used to do, um, and ask about, like, what's new mm-hmm, and what's mm-hmm. going on and what I should listen well, to. Well, that's very far in the future that the AI is... Uh, I know, but that's... That, as if that was possible, you would, you would, I, would have, I would have the winning good point here today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things. It's the same saying uh, VR is going to be great for empathy and... Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. That's good. <laughs> you the VR. That's the VR cutthroat. Uh, good yeah, point. Yeah, I'm. I'm just not so into when they say it's going to be great in ten years. Just wait, and then, but buy it in the meantime. Mm. I did have a great VR experience though a couple of weeks ago. I told oh, cool. you I did. I did. There's like hope. VR. Well, if it's social with people, it's fun. With friends, it's fun. Is it uh, something you could see doing regularly? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I did bring me back. It brought me back to like some sort of like I don't know teenage feeling. Did of you like watch going uh, Ready Player One? The arcade, not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Maybe no. I'll maybe I'll squeeze it in this weekend. I'll, I'm on vacation. Yeah. Okay, I have to uh, actually get on a plane. I have to get going. Um, we have a field recording. We do. We do indeed. Uh, hi, Jeremy. Uh, attached will find a feed, field recording of a John Cage performance. Thank you. <laughs> By the Santa Clara Music Ensemble and John Kennedy. I mean, how appropriate is this for this episode? This happened one evening at the David Ireland House, uh, a.k.a. 500 Cap. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. All my best, Joanna. Thank you, Joanna, Thank for you, this Joanna. Uh, apropos uh, uh, field recording. How fitting. Yeah, how fitting. Keep sending in your field recordings. Um, keep listening to music. Keep fucking shit up keep hating your parents <laughs> yes <laughs> uh and keep listening and uh, we're really grateful for you yeah thank you everybody uh, have a great week bye bye and
Oh,